Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business. Welcome. My name is Matthias Katon and I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. The center is a think tank, research center and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the center, go to indogerman.center. And you can also find the link, obviously, in the Show notes. Today, we will talk with my guest about sanctions. And that is obviously a very timely topic, given that we are still facing the war in Ukraine with a lot of sanctions that Western countries primarily tried to impose on Russia. And we'll talk about what these sanctions are and uh, whether or not they were or will be an effectful and a good way to change behavior. But obviously sanctions uh, have been around for a long time in history, but also currently if you think about countries such as Iran, for example, and North Korea, both of which uh, are facing sanctions with the intention of hindering them to develop further nuclear capabilities and uh, other countries uh, as well. We are seeing increasingly tough stance that um, the US is taking vis-a-vis -vis China with also sanctions uh, that are being implemented on a different scale, but we'll talk about that and what works and what doesn't, why countries do that. So to do that, I have a, a guest as always. Um, her name is Julia Graufogel. She is a senior research fellow at the German Institute of Global and Area Studies, also known by its acronym GIGA in Hamburg, Germany. And uh, there she's the spokesperson of the research team Interventions and Security. She leads the research project on sanctions termination in times of crises, unpacking the role of external shocks, which is funded by the German Research Foundation. And her work on international sanctions and authoritarian rule has appeared in leading uh, scientific journals such as the International Studies Quarterly and the Journal of Peace Research. But she is also a frequent commentator in uh, media outlets uh, such as uh, Die Tageszeitung Taz, a German daily newspaper, NZZ from Zurich and uh, Tagesschau, major German news channels and a few other publications as well. So she's a researcher, but someone who is also willing and able to explain her uh, research and her findings uh, to a general audience. So she's a great guest, I think, for our podcast. Welcome, uh, Julia. Welcome. So I, I mentioned uh, some of the sanctions that are being discussed right now because they are, you know, part of the, the political discussion. So generally speaking, why do countries implement sanctions? So countries basically implement sanctions for three major reasons or to pursue three major purposes, I would say. The first purpose that usually first comes to, to people's mind is to actually force another country or to force another regime or another leadership to change objectable behavior. And this can be a breach of international law, such as uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine, 
but it can also be a violation of human rights. So really forcing another country or another regime to change its behavior. And this is usually what we have in mind when we talk about whether sanctions work or not. But sanctions also fulfill to other purposes which are perhaps less prominent because sanctions also constrain the leverage of the sanctioned country or the sanctioned regime. So they don't really force you to abandon a certain behavior, but they at least constrain you in pursuing this behavior further. And one example would be that the current sanctions against Russia haven't really succeeded in forcing Russia to, to withdraw from Ukraine, but they have constrained the ability of Russia to finance the war and also to, to wage the war in technological terms. And then a third reason, and this is sometimes discredited as cheap talk, but is also very important, is that sanctions signal that a certain behavior is not wanted. That, for instance, this breach of international law that Russia did um, has consequences, has costly consequences. And sometimes people say this is just symbolic policies, but in our research we have actually shown that the signaling function of sanctions is also quite important. So, right, you're saying that obviously one goal is to, to change behavior. And uh, if you look at uh, Russia as the one um, kind of most prominent case uh, right now, one could say, well, they haven't achieved that goal because uh, we're uh, about one year into the war and it's still going on. But you said, well, one aspect is that it's constraining its behavior. And I understand this in, in a way that you're saying, well, it could have been worse, right? If we hadn't had the sanctions, maybe they would have been able to you know, launch a, even an even bigger war or, you know, um, finance a bigger offensive or something like that. Is that uh, what you're saying? Exactly. So um, we do see that the sanctions have constrained the Russian regime, both in terms of its ability to finance the war. There was a major freezing of foreign reserves. Then we now also see the consequences of uh, the oil price cap um, and the yeah technological export bans unfolding. So in that regard, they've really constrained the ability of the Russian regime to wage the war, also in terms of technology, because we do have a lot of export bans for technology, and we see that these high technology, for instance, chips are also missing, for instance, in the Russian defense industry, which apparently lacked these chips to build modern tanks. So in that regard, as you said, it could have been much worse without the sanctions, even though they haven't forced Putin to withdraw from Ukraine. Now, the problem, I guess, with this is that uh, since it's counterfactual, it's uh, a bit difficult to really pinpoint that because, you know, you're saying that hypothetically, if we hadn't had the sanctions, you know, Russia might have done uh, much worse things. Uh, is there a way that you said, you know, we know that? Do we really know that or do we just assume by inference saying, you know, if they had had these chips, they might have had, you know, more advanced tanks or stuff like that? Is there a way to really measure that? This constraining effect? That's a very interesting question. So for, as you said, for ongoing cases, that's always sort of difficult because we can't already say this sanctions case is over and uh, we look into archives or whatever um, to assess its effectiveness. But um, for the example that I mentioned, for the chips, for instance, we are pretty certain that without these uh, technology export bans, Russia would have had better abilities to build modern tanks and modern weaponry. But of course, we can also... In in fear from past cases. And there we can open the archives. We have also large quantitative studies. And here we can be pretty certain with our assessments about how well sanctions work, also with regard to this constraining function.
if we take another case, because as you said, uh, the the case of Russia is well a relatively new and also ongoing. Although uh, one might say also not that new, because I believe that the first sanctions against Russia were already implemented after they invaded Crimea, which was in 2014 or 2015. And apparently, one could say that uh, they haven't really stopped the regime from uh, pursuing uh, this, let's say, expansive uh, policies further. Uh, but if you look at other countries, North Korea, for example, has been under sanctions for a very long time, and uh, they still have developed nuclear capabilities. So, I mean, I understand that speaking of individual cases uh, from the scientific perspective is always anecdotal only. You say, you know, that's not, that's not really empirical in that sense. At least it seems that um, the case against the effectiveness of uh, sanctions is rather strong, isn't it? So I guess my, my answer to your question is uh, twofold. Uh, one is more specifically about the case of Russia once again, and the other part is more general. So about the case of Russia, you're right that we already had uh, sanctions following Russia's annexation of Crimea, but these were very different from the sanctions that we see unfolding over the past year. One could even say that those sanctions that were imposed against Russia over Crimea were largely symbolic compared to the sanctions that we have right now. So what we really see right now is sort of unprecedented, both in terms of the speed with which the Western actors, also the European Union, adopted the sanctions. We've had nine sanctions packages up until now, and the first three of them were imposed within just weeks. So we really see a very rapid response that's very different to the response we saw over Crimea. We also see a very large coalition of states supporting these sanctions, which is unusual. I mean, it's normal that we have Western states aligning with EU, US and also UK sanctions. But what we see here is, for instance, that Singapore as an important financial hub also supports the sanctions. That Switzerland, which was traditionally neutral, also supports these current sanctions. So that's also pretty unprecedented. And also the scope of measures that we have right now is very much different from what we saw in 2014-2015 with regard to the financial sanctions, the freezing of the foreign reserves, the export bans, um, the sanctions that concern oil and gas. So in that regard, just saying that sanctions in 2014-15 didn't work doesn't mean the same for the sanctions we have right now. The second part of my answer would be that making a case against sanctions based on the case of Russia is also sort of difficult or problematic in the sense that Russia is a very unusual case. We know based on research um, that there are several success factors and most of them are unfortunately structurally not present in the case of Russia. Um, sanctions work better against democracies, sanctions work better against smaller economies, Russia is still the 11th largest economy in the world, sanctions work better against countries that don't have nuclear capabilities, that are not such a major geopolitical power, that don't have these massive natural reserves. So in the sense, just saying based on this, that in general sanctions don't work is sort of problematic because most of the sanctions are leveraged actually against small economies. And here we have overall, depending on which data you use, but roughly a success rate of about a third. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, that's interesting. Uh, obviously, one thing I get it, there are different levels and uh, levels of severity of uh, sanctions. Uh, so, you know, not every sanction is comparable with another one. Uh, what I find interesting is that you said, well, they, sanctions work better against democracies. 
and against smaller countries. I think that sounds intuitive, at least the small part uh, for sure. The other part maybe also, because uh, probably democracies also care a little bit more about the costs uh, and the pain that uh, is inflicted on their, their population, which authoritarian regimes generally do less. Now, if I wanted to be facetious in this context, I would say, well, those are also the countries that normally don't need the sanctions as much, you know, because the democracies, by and large, they tend to behave less nasty than uh, non-democracies. And also smaller countries, uh, they have at least less potential to destabilize you know, international relations. So they, there may be atrocities, for example, uh, committed in, in small countries, but a small country will not have the possibility to really change uh, geopolitics, such as Russia is able to do, such as China is for sure able to do. So in that sense, sanctions are more important for the, author the big authoritarian countries than the small democratic ones, wouldn't you say? Yeah, so in a sense, you're right, because, of course, those who impose sanctions, which we refer to as senders in, in the sanctions research, can't really choose whom to sanction. And that's sort of the tricky part, because a lot of the success factors uh, that I just mentioned, something that you as a sender country can't really influence, right? Because you sanction those that yeah, commit atrocities or that wage wars, and you don't really have a choice of whether these are small or bigger countries. Um, so one thing uh, that struck us in our research and in the project that you just mentioned was, are there also components of sanctions that the senders can actually influence um, and that increase success? And we actually found that it's not all beyond your reach as a sender country. But um, for instance, um, clear goals and a clear communication over the goals also decreases the length of the sanctions regime and increases the success rate. And this is something that you as a sender country can very much influence, of course. And the other thing is that it's not really the case that sanctions are only imposed and only need to impose against the bigger countries. But of course, you also have a lot of drastic human rights violations in smaller countries. Uh, we've compiled data of all sanctions that have been imposed since 1990. We show that more than half of them are actually imposed against smaller nations in Africa and in the Middle East. And of course, these are not the big geopolitical struggles, but for the people in the country who fight for democracy or human rights, these sanctions are also very much important. And if these sanctions at least work, then this is, of course, I would say the glass is rather half full than half empty. Fair point. And obviously, I'm trying to, you know, maybe provoke you a little bit uh, here. Uh, and again, I mean, you said more than half of the uh, sanctions uh, in place worldwide uh, concern smaller countries, which uh, may be an indication of your findings that they are, in, in fact, you know, more effective vis-a-vis uh, -vis those countries. One could also say that it's probably less painful for, for the, the sender countries, I think you, you call them, in the correct terminology of your, your research area. Uh, it's less painful, of course, you know, as, say, the European Union sanctioning a small African country doesn't really hurt very much, right? Because that's also, I think, a part of your research is, you know, who's actually hurt more, the, the sender country or the recipient country of a sanction? Whereas, for example, uh, sanctioning China even more than Russia, because Russia um, at the end of the day is really strong, in my opinion, only in one area, which is you know export of natural resources, primarily gas, of course. But China is a, is a much more powerful and also a much more integrated country into global economy. So if we were to sanction them, that would uh, be much more painful for Western countries uh, than it is to sanction an African country, right? Definitely, of course, it's more painful. I mean, we have this whole debate about the cost of sanctions against Russia currently. 
even though I feel sometimes it's slightly exaggerated because I think the bottom line is still that these sanctions are much more painful for Russia than they are for the population in Europe, for instance. But of course, these sanctions also carry costs for, for the European population, perhaps more than for the US population. The other side of the coin is that if sanctions also inflict costs upon those who impose them, this also makes the signal more credible. Right? Because I also talked about the signaling function of sanctions. And if sanctions don't carry any costs for those who impose them, then this is sort of a cheap signal. But if you show that you're willing to, to pay for, for imposing sanctions and to also feel some of the harm, then this, of course, makes the signal that um, you can't breach international law without any consequences, that you can't violate human rights, that you can't repress your population without facing the consequences of sanctions, that makes the signal much more credible. It also shows that the targets of sanctions, how we refer to those countries being sanctioned, that there is the possibility of even tougher measures. So in that sense, having costly sanctions also for those who impose sanctions, it makes the signal more credible, um, but it also works better in terms of fending off potential future misbehavior because you know that you are potentially facing not just symbolic but really costly sanctions. That is interesting and I, I mean I, I get the point that it makes it more credible if you as the sender are also willing to uh, um, sustain some pain. However, I think also, at least in the case of Russia, the, the speculation by the Russian regime and by Putin seemed to be that this pain that the Western countries have to suffer will eventually lead to the populations in these countries um, opposing those uh, those sanctions, which, uh, of course, is much easier if you live in a democracy where you can voice a dissent uh, freely than, than it is, for example, in, in a country like uh, Russia. And I mean, I, I think so far these voices have not prevailed, but uh, we're apparently also not at the end or anywhere near the end of this uh, armed uh, conflict. What I want to talk about a little bit is, is this uh, third dimension, this uh, signaling of you know good and bad behavior, which uh, I think is also inherently human, right? I think you can observe these uh, kinds of behaviors also within societies where societies try to impose sanctions, official or unofficial sanctions, uh, on people who show some kind of deviant behavior, right? So there's, um, there's even studies about this that show that a lot of people are willing to suffer themselves if they uh, feel that they have to castigate someone who has shown an antisocial or, or deviant behavior in, within a, a society or a group. The question is, of course, is this, you know, at the end of the day, not only just a, a cheap replacement for, for tougher action. I mean, we, we have these discussions right now about arms uh, deliveries, right? And uh, it's, it's probably fair to say that at least in the short term, delivering arms to Ukraine is much more powerful than uh, sanctioning uh, Russia, uh, at least in the short term. And we have a lot of discussions. Should we do that? What are the risks? And uh, sometimes it feels that, you know, just another round of sanctions seems to be a uh, a placebo or something that you know calms our um, moral consciousness, but doesn't really cost us that much as it would, uh, you know, maybe a closer involvement into a, a, an armed conflict. Yes, and in a sense, I mean, sanctions have been often described as an instrument between words and war. So they are, of course, sort of in the middle of that spectrum of what you could do in terms of foreign policy instruments, and they are not the delivery of weapons, but they also have a different time horizon. I mean, the delivery of weapons works pretty much Im not immediately as we see right now, but probably quicker than sanctions. Sanctions rather work in the mid to long term. 
And in that sense, um, I think sanctions, potentially weapons delivery, but also diplomatic efforts shouldn't be regarded in isolation, but they usually work in, in conjunction with each other. And especially with regards to sanctions, as I said, they can also have some, some impact on the battlefield um, if we have technological sanctions, if Russia can't build the most modern tanks anymore. But this isn't happening immediately. It unfolds over time. And I think we are now in a period where we actually see these impacts also for the Russian economy, which is very much integrated into the world economy. Production in Russia now lacks spare parts. Um, it affects the industrial sector. It will lead to, to more inflation. It will lead to more unemployment. Russian economy isn't crumbling as much as some predicted, but still we see a decline in the Russian economy. So a lot of these more mid to long term effects of sanctions are actually unfolding. But also I would like to add that these more like signaling part of sanctions isn't just cheap talk. We've shown that this is actually very much affecting also politics on the ground in those countries under sanctions. And Russia is perhaps not the best example here because we are facing a very repressive regime. We don't see a lot of protests because people actually pay a high price for protesting against the regime in Russia. But in other cases, we have shown that Even the signal of sanctions, even if these sanctions are not very costly, the signal that the international community pays attention and objects to certain behavior by imposing sanctions and pays attention to a domestic situation actually encourages protesters and anti-regime activity in a lot of countries. So in that sense, it's not just cheap talk, but it has very tangible repercussions in those countries. Okay, that is an interesting observation because sometimes uh, people say also it might have the opposite effect, right? So that this uh, rallying around the flag effect, if a country is being sanctioned, uh, that will allow the regime to, you know, play on the narrative of us versus them and, you know, we, we have to come together. So your, your research shows clearly that that is not the case, that opposition movements within authoritarian regimes are strengthened rather than weakened uh, if uh, external sanctions are imposed. Is that uh, how I understand you? Unfortunately, it's a little more complicated because we observe both. It can be that opposition movements are strengthened. Um, and I myself conducted interviews, for instance, in Zimbabwe, where opposition actors, where the civil society told me that um, sanctions were very much important for them. They were a beacon of hope, how people phrased it in the interviews. They were a strong signal that the international community hadn't forgotten about their fight for democracy, that they were watching, that they weren't alone in their struggle for more respect for human rights, for more democratic governance. But we also see rally around the flag effects, and sometimes this also happens in the same country. So we also saw the regime in Zimbabwe, to, to return to that example, trying to use sanctions and claiming that this was very much an anti-Zimbabwean, neo-imperialist uh, intervention from outside, and that the population, as you said, had to stand against, together against this common enemy. And some people also bought into that narrative. So we basically often have both developments at the same time. And if we now turn to a more recent case, Iran, I feel that a lot of people want tougher sanctions on Iran because they hope that this will support the domestic struggle in Iran. But there's, of course, also that danger that the regime rallies for support in, in light of this external intervention. So we often see both developments at the same time. I 
I think in your research, you also talked or mentioned uh, South Africa, for example. I mean, that's a bit an example that is a bit further in the, in the past. But during apartheid in the 1980s, there were also sanctions and, and boycott movements and stuff like that. Do you think in this particular case, uh, they helped uh, the uh, ultimate uh, you know, abandonment and the country overcoming apartheid in the early 1990s? Yes, because this is a case where we actually now can look back in, in history and we have a lot of evidence uh, through interviews, through archival material. And of course, sanctions were just one piece in the puzzle. Sanctions rarely work on its own and saying sanctions are only successful if they work on their own, I think, is also too much of an expectation for one foreign policy instrument. But they were one piece in the puzzle of sustaining the anti-apartheid struggle. So in this case, they did encourage regime anti-regime protests and the broader struggle against the apartheid regime. You mentioned that obviously there are different types of sanctions, also different levels of severity. In your opinion or in your in your research, are there specific types of sanctions that work better than others or does it also depend a lot on the on the circumstances? So of course there is more comprehensive types of measures. If we talk about sanctions, we have a whole range of instruments, uh, starting with this very comprehensive trade embargoes that we saw, for instance, in the 1990s in the case of Iraq. Then there were a lot of humanitarian side effects and drastic humanitarian consequences, and these measures were very much discredited. Then there was a movement to impose what was called smarter sanctions, so more targeted measures that targeted specific individuals, specific firms. And then we have something in between, which can be the suspension of development aid, which can be um, financial sanctions. And currently we observe what's been referred to as a recomprehensivization of sanctions. So um, tougher sanctions being imposed again. And this pretty much started with the past case of Iran. Um, we've seen this in Afghanistan, in the case of Syria, and now in the case of Russia, that sanctions are becoming in general more comprehensive again. In terms of what works best, I would say it's usually the interplay of different different types of measures. And I'll give you one example. In the current case of sanctions against Russia, we had financial sanctions pretty much from the onset. We had the freezing of the foreign reserves of Russia, almost 300 billion. And we had financial sanctions in the sense that several banks were cut off the SWIFT system. And also some of these sanctions ended up being directly sanctioned. Some of these banks ended up being directly sanctioned. So in theory, this should have worked to undermine the Russian ability to, to finance the war. But while we had these sanctions in place, initially the Europeans were still pursuing large amounts of oil and gas and a lot of money still went to Russia. So essentially these financial sanctions started working much better when we also had the sanctions in the energy sector and the oil price cap uh, started to, to unfold and started to, to work. So it's really this interplay of different measures that works in the end. And then we can say that these individual sanctions are pretty much small fishes compared to the financial sanctions. But they are also important in the sense of showing the population in Russia that Western sanctions are not imposed to punish the broader population, but really imposed to also make those responsible who wage the war. So I think in the end, it's the interplay of different measures that works best. 
You, you mentioned uh, SWIFT uh, as, uh, I think, a, a key aspect, some banks being cut off, but you, you said, you know, some banks, and uh, there were also discussions about cutting the entire country off of uh, SWIFT. Uh, eventually, you know, the Western countries shied away from that. I think one of the arguments was also, which I found a bit weird, to be honest, is that, you know, if we do that, then countries will move away from SWIFT and we will not have that possibility in the future. So there was this kind of inherent contradiction, at least in my interpretation, that the West had a, an extremely powerful sanction tool at, at its disposal, but didn't want to use it for fear of being unable to use it in the future. So, you know, you have it at your disposal, but you can't really use it because you feel that then, you know, you can cannot use it a second or a third time because countries will try to find alternatives. Are these countries also sometimes a bit afraid of, you know, going overboard maybe in, in one direction and therefore being too cautious? I think the same is true with um, you, what you said is targeting only specific people. There was this attempt to identify some of these oligarchs that were supposedly very close to, to Putin. Uh, now it's also questionable to what extent they can influence him, but uh, that's a different matter. So, you know, uh, some of the yachts have been seized in the Mediterranean, but ordinary Russians, for example, can still spend their vacations, I think, in Europe in summer. So sometimes the West also seems to be a bit um, almost afraid of its own economic power. Could that be the case? So I think in the case of Russia, this example that this would undermine the instrument of financial sanctions in the long run was perhaps also an excuse and the West wasn't really ready to to impose the complete SWIFT ban because at that time you were still still getting gas and oil so and they needed mechanisms of transfer to, to pay Russia for gas and oil. So I think in that sense, this was perhaps also an excuse. But more generally speaking... The fear that an excessive use of financial sanctions may undermine the instrument in the long run isn't totally far-fetched. Because what we have seen even prior to the current war in Ukraine, but um, this development has accelerated very much with the current war in Ukraine, is that sanctions have indeed tried to de-dollarize their economy in anticipation of financial sanctions. They have tried to move away from the SWIFT system, they've tried to build their alternatives. Um, India is currently investing in a settlement mechanism that very much tries to mimic uh, SWIFT but isn't SWIFT. Countries are trying to use more of the local currencies or rubles or rupees for the settlement of international transactions. And in that sense, we see a strong connection between financial sanctions and different countries' attempts of de-dollarization and attempts to move beyond the SWIFT system. So in that sense, the excessive use of financial sanctions indeed could undermine this instrument in the long run. It won't like challenge dollar hegemony anytime soon. That's unrealistic. But still, there's these attempts of trying to find other settlement mechanisms also through cryptocurrencies, for instance. And in that sense, I think that that fear that an excessive use of financial sanctions may undercut the instrument isn't totally far-fetched. And I'm currently working in a joint project with U.S. colleagues where we address exactly that question uh, because we find it extremely interesting. We say that the West still wants to impose financial sanctions for a lot of reasons. So what they, we find what they do rather than limiting the use of financial sanctions is that the West strategically limits the enforcement of financial sanctions. 
because it's not so much about imposing those financial sanctions in the first place. If other countries can still find a way around, they will continue to use SWIFT, they will continue to use the dollar. So there's sort of a strategic limit to how much you would impose, enforce those financial sanctions in order not to push out other countries, other firms out of the dollar wheel. A bold prediction, the world in 10 years. We are always ask our guests to look into the future. And we know this is difficult, of course, in volatile environments in particular. But still, we like uh, you to take a shot and give us your bold prediction about how the world will look like in 10 years when it comes to sanctions and sanction regimes. So when it comes to sanctions... I'm pretty sure that they will continue to be a very popular foreign policy tool. And I think the increasing use of sanctions that we are witnessing will continue and it will mostly concern two instruments. One are these sanctions against individuals that we talked about and sanctions against firms. And that also has far-reaching repercussions for companies in the West because we already see that, for instance, banks have large sanctions units now that monitor sanctions that have increased drastically over the past decade, I would say. And I've been in touch with some of these units and it's pretty impressive what they do in terms of work. But I think in the future, even smaller companies will have to monitor and implement these sanctions very carefully. So in that sense, it's something that nowadays may still sound like a tool of international relations, but I think it will even more so than today and increasingly have an impact on the day-to-day -day business relations, even of, of smaller or medium-sized companies. The second thing that we will observe is these increasing use of financial sanctions and uh, the continued weaponization, how it has been referred to, weaponization of financial interdependence that we observe so the West attempts to wield their dominance in the global financial system and especially the dominance of the dollar as a weapon of foreign policy. But as I said, and here's like the bold prediction, I think this will eventually backfire. So I'm not expecting that the dollar will have lost its status as the global reserve currency in 10 years. But I think we will increasingly see islands of de-dollarization, islands of different uh, settlement mechanisms for international trade, for international transactions that are also at least partially a response to this reliance, strong reliance or perhaps even over-reliance on financial sanctions. You mentioned uh, India and obviously uh, since uh, we're here um, based at the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence, we work a lot with uh, India. There have been some controversy between Western countries and India because India has, while they have uh, criticized Russia, they have been unwilling so far to, to follow suite on the sanctions regime. And I think and I saw that in one of your papers where you also try to analyze what countries use sanctions most. Uh, and I think it's quite clear that it, it is predominantly used by uh, countries from the West or the, you know, the, the developed countries, the US, European Union, uh, and not so much uh, from those uh, or by those countries in the global South. Uh, so is it at the end of the day, you know, just a, a weapon used by developed countries uh, as a kind of neo-colonialism, as some uh, will, will claim? Or do you think that uh, the, the value of sanctions is also being seen by emerging economies, for example, just maybe in another, in another setting? No, I think there's also sanctions being used by non-Western countries. 
two developments are perhaps interesting to mention here. One is that, for instance, China for a long time refused to talk about sanctions. They imposed restrictions that we could have called sanctions, but they weren't referring to them as sanctions because they opposed sanctions very much as a Western instrument. So using them themselves and referring to sanctions was, of course, a contradiction in terms. But now we've seen that China actually more offensively also refers to counter sanctions against the European Union, for instance. So China has become uh, more vocal and more willing to also use that instrument. Another development is that it's not a Western instrument in the sense that we also see a lot of regional organizations beyond the West using sanctions. So when we collected data, we also knew and we had anecdotal evidence that there is a lot of sanctions by regional organizations on the African continent in the Middle East. And then we, we dig deeper and we found a lot of these regional sanctions. They are, of course, sort of, sort of different from the sanctions that the EU, for instance, imposes because the EU tends to impose sanctions against third countries, whereas these regional organizations like the African Union or SADC or ECOWAS in Western Africa impose sanctions against their own member states. But there is countries in the global south that also make use of that instrument and quite successfully so. So in that sense, it's not just a Western instrument. Executive Briefing. What you should read now. We ask our guests for a recommendation for people, listeners, uh, who would like to learn a little bit more about the topic of today's episode. What would you recommend? Where can they look at? What books, journals, uh, other publications should they take into consideration? So when we talk about recommendations that specifically focus on sanctions, um, there's, of course, a lot out there. There's a book forthcoming that exactly describes this development of financial sanctions and how financial sanctions might backfire. It's unfortunately not published yet, so I've only read the announcement, which sounds super interesting. It's by Daniel McDowell. Um, it's called Backing the Back. It talks about how this over-reliance on the dollar as a weapon in foreign policy might backfire, how target states adapt, how they try to find alternative settlement mechanisms, how they rely on blockchain technology on charter systems um, and so on and so forth to avoid the Western reach and the Western coercive reach. So this is something on my reading list and I'm very much looking forward to reading that book. If you want to have a general overview of sanctions, also the role of sanctions in the current conflict, there is an annual peace report published by different research institutes And there is one chapter in last year's peace research report that specifically deals with the successes, but also the failures and the limits of sanctions. Excellent. Thank you very much for these two recommendations. And we will put them in the show notes so that listeners can see where they can find them. And even the forthcoming book, you might have to wait a little bit or maybe also people listen to this episode at a point in the future when the book is already available. Julia, we've come to the end of this episode. Thank you very, very much for the interesting conversation on this very, very important and also timely topic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. 
You can also go to our website at businessdiplomacy.today to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.